A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what do you think about when you think about God? Do you think about someone you're supposed to try and impress or someone you could never impress and yet loves you as if you're the most impressive creature he ever created? Because you are. When you think about God, do you think about someone who is constantly disappointed with you? Or someone who loves you so much that he sent his own son to die a horrible death for you long before you ever thought about cleaning up your act? Because he did. When you think about God, do you think about someone who wants you to measure up to him or someone who wants you to worship him even though you could never measure up to him? Because he does. These are important distinctions because they shape your view of God. The fact is we serve a benevolent, gracious, compassionate Father and yet at the same time, God is holy. He does have standards that he commands us to live by and even knowing that we'll never measure up to his perfect standard this side of eternity, he still wants us to worship him above everything else in this world because he understands that at the center of every human life there is a throne and whoever or whatever occupies that throne is what rules your life. And whatever rules your life is what you spend your lifetime worshiping and serving. See, if you read the Bible from one end to the other, you will find that what has occupied the throne of the majority of people's lives throughout biblical history is exactly what occupies the throne of the majority of people's lives today. It's themselves. Most people place themselves on the throne at the center of their own lives. It's our human nature to do so, which is why most people work and plan and live out their lives in ways that are primarily self-serving, which, of course, you would think would result in a lot of really happy, satisfied, fulfilled people, right? And yet what you find is just the opposite. Some of the most affluent and affluential People in the world who go after and often get everything they want out of this world are deeply unhappy, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled people. Just look at the number of rich and famous and successful people who take their own lives each year. And the truth is, one of the happiest, most satisfying and fulfilling moments a human being can ever experience is not when you get everything you want out of this life. It's when you finally come to the realization that this life is not all about you. That this life, the reason you exist, the purpose you were created to live for is ultimately not about you. It's the very message Jesus taught. By the way, it's one that his own disciples had to learn before they would be able to live beyond themselves, beyond the self-absorbed, self-focused, self-serving lives that all human beings naturally gravitate toward. And look, uh, those early disciples didn't fully understand that in their own lives until well after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. In other words, they were believers and followers of Jesus Christ long before 
before they allowed him to fully occupy that throne in their own lives. And see, I think as believers and followers of Jesus Christ today, I think we often share that same struggle. I certainly do. In fact, I believe the modern church has been guilty of promoting a version of Christianity that focuses more on the Christian than it does on the Christ. There are a lot of Christian books being written and sermons being preached and articles being published these days that promote the life of the Christian far more than they do the life of Christ. See, and in doing so, we're fostering generations of Christians who believe it's okay to conform God's word to fit their lifestyle rather than conforming their lifestyle to fit God's word. Christians who assign a higher value to personal feelings than they do to objective truth. Christians who are convinced that because God is love, then clearly he must affirm everything they believe about themselves. R.C. Sproul once asked the question, do you love the biblical Christ? The qualifier is necessary because people are prone to declare their belief in a Jesus who has nothing to do with the man depicted in the biblical record. How is it that we've come so far from the actual teachings of Jesus Christ and the rest of the Bible? Well, it's simple. By focusing more on ourselves than we do on him. Right? When, when you are at the center of your own universe... It stands to reason that nothing is more important than you, or what you think or what you feel or what you believe, regardless of what the word of God may say to the contrary. See, if, if Jesus is not on the throne in your own heart and mind, then what he says will always come second to what you feel. And when you have Christians in mass following their own feelings more than we follow the teachings of Christ, what you end up with is a self-focused version of Christianity whose followers worship what has been created instead of worshiping the Creator. We're going to see that in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, which is another important distinction to pay attention to. The fact that Paul wrote this letter to the church. Keep that in mind as we go. He wrote this to professing Christians, okay? Because the first century church in Rome, much like the 21st century church in America today, was full of people whose hearts had turned away from God. Look, not because they didn't believe in him, but because they started worshiping what he created instead of worshiping him. They became more impressed with what was created than they were with the creator himself, which is the question this part of the letter raises, not just for those early believers, but for all of us today. Do you worship God? Or are you worshiping something else? Maybe this world. Maybe yourself. If you're not sure how to answer that objectively, then think of it this way. If someone who doesn't know you, someone you've never met, were to observe you living every moment of your life for a solid week or a solid month without you knowing they were even there, what conclusion would they come to? What would they say is the most important thing clearly observed in your life based on how you're living it day by day? God or yourself? See, this is what Paul's trying to bring to light 
to the early church in Rome, and it is exactly what needs to come to light in the church today because the letter starts out focused on the gospel and the fact that we've been set apart as a people for the sake of the gospel. We covered all that last week in the first half. But listen, you'll never understand the gospel until you understand your own need for the gospel. Right? Which is why Paul devotes the second half of this chapter and the few that follow to shining a spotlight on the state of the church, the state of God's people when we focus on ourselves more than we focus on him. So let's pick the story up where we left off last week at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And we'll begin by reading through verse 23. So Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So after a lengthy statement about the gospel and the fact that God's people have been set apart for and unashamedly in service to the gospel, Paul turns his focus to our great need for the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, Paul's aim here is to show that the whole of humanity is morally bankrupt, unable to claim a favorable verdict on the day of God's judgment and therefore desperately in need of his mercy and pardon. And of course, he's also drawing attention to how that moral bankruptcy was making its way into the church. Okay, it was widely understood at the time at least by anyone who was concerned with morality, it was widely understood at the time that Rome was a haven for mass paganism. We know that because it's well attested to in ancient literature as we see, I was reading in some other writings, Jewish apologetic writings such as the Book of Wisdom, uh, the Epistle of Aristides. Uh, we see it as well in Christian apologetic writings as early as the second century AD, including the Epistle to Diognetius from uh, other Christian authors as well as Aristides, Tatian, uh, Athenagoras, the preaching of Peter, which is mentioned by Clement of Alexandria in his major work, the Stromatice. Okay, the point is Mediterranean and Near Eastern pagan religion worshipped idols in the form often of beasts or sometimes in the likeness of mixed beasts and human deities. It was much like the ancient gods uh, of Egypt. And so these ancient authors describe not only the images of these beasts that were housed in their great temples, but he's, they say that they were also uh, commonly kept in homes by Roman families. They were considered individual house gods inside their homes. The point is, first century Rome uh, culture, Roman culture was as pagan as you could get, right? Within much of the church as well. And it was beginning to increasingly reflect, the church was beginning to increasingly reflect this pagan culture. So Paul says, uh, all of this, arises from misconceptions about God. He's bringing up issues about your conception 
of God, wrong ideas about who God is, which is naturally what happens as a result of men and women who spend more time contemplating the created world and all of its glory than they do contemplating the one who created all of this and all of his glory. And so in response, the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God, of course, being his revulsion against everything that contradicts his holiness and a true understanding about who he is, right? A a true conception of who God is. And then Paul goes on to explain that we're without excuse for not seeking God in order to understand who he is, that we might know him and worship him alone, that we might have a right conception of who he is. For what can be known, Paul says, about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This was even before telescopes and microscopes and all the things we have now. We know so much more about how creation exists and is made and has put together the order and structure of things than they did then. And even then, Paul says they're without excuse. In other words, there's a general revelation of God clearly seen in what's been created. And so we have no excuse for not seeking the creator. Bible scholar Richard Lenski said, men cannot charge God with hiding himself from them and thus excuse their irreligion and their immorality. Because the evidence of God is all around us. Because the entire natural world bears witness to God through its beauty and complexity and order and design and function. The evidence of a creator is everywhere around us. Then Paul really turns up the heat on the church to whom you'll remember this letter is addressed in the first place. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. The problem is not that they did not know God, but that they did know him and yet refused to glorify him as God, worshiping what was created rather than the creator himself. This is the root of all sin. It's elevating ourselves, what has been created above the creator, despite the clear and obvious revelation of himself and what has been made, and in the process of believing, we've become enlightened over time, right? Cultured beyond our ancient predecessors, moving beyond an ancient creed, an outdated message, calling into question the relevance of God's word today, or at least parts of it, thinking we've become wise, woke, self-aware, Instead, Paul says, no, we become fools. Again, he's talking about those who have known God. When he says, in essence, you're no longer a worshiper of God when you become more impressed with creation than you are with the creator. In fact, you're missing the whole point of creation when what is created becomes more of a priority for you than God himself. Right, Because everything that has been created is supposed to point us back to God, not distract us from Him. Creation is supposed to point us to the Creator. So when our lives point people to something other than God, well then it's time to ask the question, 
what am I actually worshiping here? God? This world? Or myself? Because you understand your life reflects what you worship. How you live your life every day reveals what it is you truly worship. So what occupies the majority of your thoughts? What demands the majority of your attention? What requires the majority of your money? What receives the majority of your affection? What is the focus of the majority of your energy and effort? Because Jesus was, was clear. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you know, in the ancient Greek, the word all means all. There's just not a lot of room for other interpretations there. It's actually the Greek adjective halos. It refers to something wholly complete. Okay, true worship is all consuming, which means it's all consumed with Christ. And so when we live our lives as if our single greatest purpose on earth is to look after ourselves, well, then we're living an inauthentic life outside of God's created order. It's the creation actually revolting against its creator, invoking the wrath of God because a just God is only just if he demands justice. And so the second half of this chapter is why we need the first half of the chapter. Because we've incurred the wrath of God through sin described in the latter half of the chapter. So we need a savior. We need the good news of the gospel described in the first half of the chapter. So you understand when Paul talks about salvation in verse 16, which we covered last week. He's not talking about salvation from hell or the devil or sin or death. No, he's talking about salvation from the wrath of God. Far worse than all of those other things combined. When we receive the gospel, which again Paul describes as the power of God for salvation, what we are actually saved from is God's wrath so that we, his creation, may be restored to the authentic God worshipers we were created to be. That's how you know you're living an authentic life. Not a perfect life but an authentic one when Jesus is the focus of your worship, which is evident in how you live your life from day to day. Because how you choose to live your life every single day, that is your worship ultimately to something, either to Christ or to this world or to yourself, which, by the way, also has profound implications beyond just your life. Bible scholar and author John MacArthur once said, you are the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. For many people, you are the only representation of Christ they will ever know. Let that sink in for a moment. There are people in this world whose only knowledge of Jesus Christ is based on what they know about you which means their entire understanding of who he is and what he is like is entirely based upon who you are and what you are like. And with that in mind, what does Jesus look like for them? Like the man we read about in the Bible? Or does he look more like you? Do you worship God? Or do you worship something else, maybe this world, maybe yourself.
Does your daily life point to him? Does it point others to him? Or are you too preoccupied with his creation to worship the creator? Theologian Timothy Keller writes, Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look weak by comparison. Let's keep reading verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So these professing believers exchanged the truth for a lie. And as a result, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, which was an important enough phrase apparently for Paul to repeat it three times just between verses 24 and 28. Because he wants the church to understand that God giving someone up to their own lie, their own false beliefs, their own misconceptions about him and who he is, that's actually one aspect of God's wrath being revealed against them. And as a result, they're receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In other words, there are consequences to following a false belief about who God is. There are consequences to worshiping ourselves, severe consequences apparently, which are often manifested in the form of spiritual or emotional or even physical blight. That's exactly what Paul was seeing happening then, and it's exactly what we see happening today professing followers of Jesus, exchanging the truth for a lie and convincing themselves and others that it's not only okay, but worthy of celebrating a life that is contrary to God's created order. And then Paul goes on to describe homosexuality. And as we'll see in the next passage, a whole host of other sins that are contrary to God's created order as well. And every single one of these sins that Paul mentions are directly tied to believing a lie. But listen, not just any lie. Because if you read that statement, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. If you read that in the ancient Greek, it literally says they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. Not a lie. So... What was the lie at the root of all this sin? It's idolatry. The sin that puts us in the place of God in our own hearts. It's the lie that you can be like God. It's the first lie mankind ever believed, as we see in Genesis 3, 5, where Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they could be like God. And as a result, they received in themselves the due penalty for their error, the curse of sin. So Paul says, look, You may believe in Jesus, but you're no longer a worshiper of God when you exchange the truth about God for the lie, the lie that says you can be like him, that you can determine based on your own preferences, your own personal beliefs about God, what is right and what is wrong, that your truth can be different from my truth. How many of you have heard that today? That it's up to every individual to find their own truth. Listen, this was rampant 
in the church at Rome in the first century, and I'm telling you, it's rampant in the church today, where people talk about believing in Jesus without believing most of what he taught. Look, you can't believe in Jesus if you don't believe what he said. We aren't afforded the luxury of picking and choosing our own version of Jesus, besides which, every other version of Jesus that anyone ever tries to sell you looks just like the person trying to sell it to you. I'm just going to say that again for the people in the back. If anyone ever tries to sell you a version of Jesus that is different from the biblical Jesus, then you can take it to the bank, brother. The Jesus they are selling you looks just like them. Why? Because that's what idolaters do. Instead of believing they were created in the image of God, they try to convince people that we can create God in whatever image we want to, to suit our own preferences. And in the process, we make God look just like us. So what's the remedy? Well, the answer is to simply believe in the truth of Jesus more than you believe in anything else. Because he is the truth. In fact, he's the only truth worth believing in because a twisted version of religion won't save you and you cannot save yourself. It's only when you come to him in humble, faith-filled submission that you're truly made clean, made whole, and that's when your life reflects his. You understand? In Christ, you are good enough. In Christ, you are worthy enough. In Christ, you are strong enough. In Christ, you are clean enough. In Christ, you are holy, accepted, righteous, redeemed, restored, powerful, and perfectly whole. All the things you could never be without him, you are when you worship him and abide in his truth. Listen, believing in him means more than just praying a simple prayer. It it starts with that, of course, but what it leads to is so much more because truly believing in Jesus means actually abiding in his truth. And interestingly, when Jesus talks about us abiding in him in the Gospel of John, he likens it to branches that grow out from a vine. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, John 15, 5. The, The two are inextricably linked. They're permanently connected. The branches rely on the vine for strength and support and nourishment. Without the vine, the branches can do exactly nothing. But when the branches abide in the vine, they produce fruit because your life is a reflection of what you worship, what you abide in. And so look, if you worship some version of a religion... You will undoubtedly be full of religion and other people will recognize you as a religious person. If you worship yourself, you will undoubtedly be full of yourself and other people will recognize you as a self-centered person. But when you worship Jesus, you'll be undoubtedly full of him and listen, people will recognize Jesus in you. The key is to believe what is true about him. It's all about your conception of God. To believe what is true about him, what his word says about him, not someone else's or even your own version of him. Again, Keller says Jesus cannot be just liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. 
Let's finish the story for today. Verse 28 to the end of the chapter. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now what's so shocking to our spiritual senses about this passage is not that people commit all of these heinous sins. In fact, we should expect nothing less from the world. The shocking part of this passage is the fact that Paul isn't talking about people in the world. He's talking about people in the church. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. These are people, if not true believers, they're certainly professing to be believers and followers of Christ. And yet they're not content to simply do evil things. They actively encourage others to commit the same evil themselves. Paul explains, he says, they, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And of course, he starts it all off by saying they did not see fit to acknowledge God. In other words, we all sin. This side of eternity, none of us, not even the most righteous among the worshipers of God has attained perfection. We all sin. The difference is when you don't even see fit to acknowledge God in your sin. In humble repentance. When your conception of God leaves him out. When you sin. Even worse, when you encourage others to sin. And you're no longer worshiping God. You're worshiping sin, this world, yourself. You've, you've bought into the lie that you can be like God by not only deciding what is right for you, even if it's in violation of God's truth, but you're deciding what's right for others, which is a terribly dangerous place to be in the eyes of a God who is a jealous God, as described in Exodus 25, which is a direct reference, by the way, to people who bow down to idols and worship created things rather than the Creator. He is a great shepherd who promises to protect his his flock against the wolves who come in sheep's clothing. It's a dangerous place to be. Okay, look, just because you believe something is true doesn't make it true. And likewise, just because you offer worship doesn't mean your worship is acceptable to God. This is hard for us to hear, but we need to hear it. Later in the same letter, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. In other words, because of all of this, I'm telling you, including what we're reading today. By the mercies of God, I'm, I appeal to you by his mercies to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12, 1, how you live your life day by day is your worship. The author of Hebrews said it this way, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28. See, simply the fact that the New Testament writers talk about acceptable worship to God, that means there must be worship that is unacceptable. 
to God. Otherwise, he wouldn't say offer acceptable worship to God. They would simply say offer worship to God. Of course, Jesus was especially clear when he said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why do we bear fruit that abides? So that, Jesus says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. According to Scripture, the worship that God accepts from us is conditional. We don't want to hear that, but that's what the Bible says. Again, the author of Hebrews, writing to a New Covenant audience, says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, his worship. Hebrews 11.4 of course, if you go back and read that story in Genesis 4, you'll see that while God accepted Abel's sacrifice, his worship, he did not accept Cain's worship. Okay? We were chosen, created, and appointed by God to bear spiritual fruit in our daily lives. That is how we worship him. And yet clearly not every offering, not every sacrifice, not every act of worship is acceptable to God, which flies in the face, I understand, of much of what people are teaching in the modern church era about worship where we've been conditioned to believe that anything we offer to God, as long as we're offering something, it's acceptable. But that's not what Scripture says. Just ask Cain. Okay, the reality is, Worship that is acceptable to God is conditional. In fact, if you read what Jesus says to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, as accorded, uh, recorded by the Apostle John, of course, he says, by the way, these are prophetic letters forewarning the church today about what happens to those whose worship is unacceptable to God, which includes his warning to the church at Laodicea, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where he says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth, Revelation 3.16. Remember, he said that to the church. In fact, the very last verse in those letters says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3.22, and again, if you read those letters, it's clear that these professing believers thought what they were offering to God was acceptable. They thought they were good. That's why he's warning them. And by default, us to begin with, because we can believe in Jesus. We can attend the church and give in the offering and sing the songs and volunteer in the ministry. And all the while, we can be offering God worship that is unacceptable while someone else's worship, someone standing right next to us who is doing all the same things, is accepted by God. Why is that? It has to do with your conception of God, your understanding of who he is. Because our worship to God is infinitely deeper than simply what we're offering to him. Right? The woman who gave the two coins gave far more than the rich who gave far more. It's, it's much deeper than what you give. In fact, it's much more about how you give it and why you give it and what it truly costs you when you give it as it is about the offering itself, which is what Paul is teaching in this letter that people, even professing believers who live outside of God's will, unrepentant while encouraging others to do the same, cannot offer acceptable worship to God no matter what you give. That's a dangerous place to be. And it's the same danger that the church is facing today when we believe that our worship is pleasing and acceptable to God simply because we're offering it even when our hearts are full of ourselves and full of unforgiveness 
and pride and greed and bitterness and selfishness and envy and who knows what else, and yet we believe he's pleased with us simply because we're giving something, anything. It's just as he says to the church in Revelation, you say I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Revelation 3, 17 through 19. He's talking to the church, to believers who believe that God is pleased with their worship when in reality he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, what you're offering me is unacceptable because you're not actually worshiping me. You're worshiping yourself. You don't truly recognize who I am. It's about your conception of God. Charles Spurgeon once said, you cannot be Christ's servant if you're not willing to follow him, cross and all. What do you crave? A crown? Then it must be a crown of thorns if you're to be like him. Do you want to be lifted up? So you shall, but it will be upon a cross. You see, it's the question. What do you think about when you think about God? Do you think about someone you're supposed to try and impress? Or someone you could never impress and yet he loves you as if you're the most impressive creature he's ever created? Because you are. When you think about God, do you think about someone who's constantly disappointed with you or someone who loves you so much he sent his only son to die a horrible death for you long before you ever thought about cleaning up your act? Because he did. When you think about God, do you think about someone who wants you to measure up to him or someone who simply wants you to worship him even though you could never measure up to him? Because he does. You understand, it's not about performance. It's not about perfection. It's about your conception of God. It's about your understanding and recognition of who He is. It's believing that he is who he says he is in his word, the creator of all things. It's believing that and then holding him in higher regard than what he's created, including yourself. And then teaching others to recognize the same. It's offering acceptable worship based on who he is not based on who you are or who you want him to be, okay? It's simply accepting the truth about God and then shaping your entire life around that. A life that reflects the image of Christ. That is how you worship God. Let's pray.